Hey, uh, it's Abby, just jumping in off the top to let you know that uh, while this is a fabulous episode in content, the recording gods were not with us on the day of this conversation. Uh, to that end, you'll hear a little bit of distortion on my audio track that starts around the 15 minute mark and goes through until the end. Don't worry, you will still be able to hear me and understand me. And I have every confidence that after about three minutes, you'll totally forget that it sounds like I'm talking with a bucket on my head. Anyway, this is just me letting you know that this isn't you or your headphones, but just me learning how to make a podcast. And now the show. I was recording the last five seconds of that. Just, just, just FYI. I'm here for it. I'm I here mean, for it. I will let you know that I just realized that I have like about nine pages of notes. That's what yeah! I have to say to that. <laughs> Let's go. Let me get my beer. And welcome to Cringe Benefits, the podcast that's all about your favorite things from childhood and your grown-up reservations about them. Today, I am super pleased to welcome back Regina Renee Russell. Regina is an actress, writer, and director born and raised in New York City. She is an avid fan of animated media, believing animation has the greatest storytelling potential of any medium. This is why she intensely scrutinizes animated media, especially media intended for children, and not just because she is an only child who is left with her own thoughts and lots of VHS tapes. Regina Renee Russell, how very much do you do? I I do I do well. I am I'm excited to dive into what this is. <laughs> I am so excited. You have no idea. Listeners, you have no idea. I was like, "Hey Regina, do you want to come back and talk about like that one movie you mentioned to me 2 weeks ago?" And Regina said, "Abby, I have a list of 15 movies." And she wrote me a list <laughs> with like paragraphs next to it and guys guys she also wrote down where i could stream the movie in oh, case yeah. i needed help finding it this oh, movie yeah. was on that list and it it was it was the standout for reasons that will hopefully become abundantly obvious um but regina actually before before i ask you about this movie i i want to start by asking you who was your favorite disney princess growing up bell yeah yeah, Fantastic. hard agree. But Fantastic. why I know why I love Belle, but tell me why you love Belle. Okay. So one is very funny because when I was younger, my VHS tape of my VHS tape of Beauty and the Beast broke. So <laughs> I didn't grow up watching Beauty and the Beast, but Beauty and the Beast was my dad's favorite. And my dad would always say, like, you know, you're like Belle, like, you know, you're always reading and, you know, you've got a brain on you and everything. It's like, that's who you should be. Like, if you got to be like somebody, be like her. Right. Mm -hmm. And then when I, when it reached 2001 and they re-released it as the special edition DVD, we oh, yeah. all freaked out in my house. And then I spent every waking day of my life for about two years watching Beauty and the Beast at least because yes. I yes. was making up for lost time. 
And in watching Beauty and the Beast as an 11-year-old or a 10-year-old, what I realized was, okay, I, I get her. I get feeling out of place. I get feeling like this isn't it for me. Like even, even when you grow up in a place as magical as New York City, depending on where you live and the circumstances inside your house, sometimes you're like, this isn't it for me. I want to see yeah, other yeah. things. Like I want to know what it's like somewhere else. And then when you come back, sometimes you can appreciate what you have. But it's like, it's the want to go somewhere else. And it instilled in me this very strong need to judge people by their actions, not by what they look like. And to yeah. like actively mistrust someone who's like bringing on the front of, yes, I'm very good looking. And aren't I charming? And doesn't everybody love me? Oh, you don't love me? Well, I'm going to try really hard to change that, girl. It's like, mm, please stop, sir. Oh, man. It, it made you look out for look out for Gastons in the world wherever you might find them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When you and when you combine that with the one two punch of Hunchback of Notre Dame, you get really it's a very it's a very interesting lesson that I took from it, which was don't trust somebody based on just on how they look and don't trust somebody just based on what their job is or their position mm -hmm. of authority is. And I am very happy that those are two lessons that I've taken into my life. And Bell is Bell exemplifies exemplifies part of that, and Esmeralda exemplifies the other part of that. <laughs> but and she's not both... a princess. I mean, listen. Uh, if the 1995 Alfonso Caron movie taught me anything, I carry through the rest of my life. It's that all women are princesses, even if they're not pretty or rich or smart. Uh, I used to be able to quote that whole speech. Yeah, Belle. Belle was definitely my favorite as well. Partly, I mean, because I was a big, big fat bookworm who did all of my all of my best living through books. But also, you totally hit the nail on the head. Everybody has their version of wanting more than this provincial life and wanting to get out and do better and be more. Mm -hmm. um, interesting as well that Beauty and the Beast was also a movie that used... Um, the transfiguration of a person into another creature as a way to kind of remove their external, remove their external markers of status and uh, make you yep. judge them based on the person they are, um, which might be a graceful segue. I don't know, but I guess what I was, <laughs> what I was trying to get out of asking you that question is, you know, what did the, I guess, what did the, the pantheon of, of, of Disney princesses look like to you as a child when you were growing up with them? Ah, um, it looked pale. Um, <laughs> ju just gonna, just gonna come out and say it. It was mostly cool. pale. Yep. Starting at um, 11, get up to a 17 real quick. Let's do yeah, it. Yeah, we're, we're on it. Guns blazing. Um, it was... I remember there seemed to be a multitude of ways to be a woman. Um, there were things that I could get from who each of these women were that I could relate to. And there was something comforting about that. And also because there was such a wide swath of humanity in it, as, as, especially as female characters, it kind of showed me that 
there's no one way to be mm-hmm. and nothing really that you do is necessarily like wrong with you. If that makes sense. It's like, if you like to read a lot, there's nothing wrong with you. There's a princess for that. If you are dreaming about, you know, going to another world that you can't possibly understand. And you're like, you're like some people dream to be like, Oh, I just want to go to the next town over, or I want to go to the next city. Like Ariel is like, I don't know anything about this legs and this fire and (laughs) fireworks and boats, but I totally want to go there. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like wanting to go to Mars, but there's nothing wrong with you because there's a princess for that. There's nothing wrong with you. If you're in an abusive household, there's nothing wrong with you. If you love to sing barefoot in the woods, like there's, there's things you can do that, like there's all there's somebody that you can relate to. Yeah. No, totally. I hadn't thought about it that way. I love I love there's a princess for that. That's such a great shorthand. <laughs> That's such a great shorthand. Do you remember do do you remember, I guess, when you noticed that uh all of the princesses were white, that that none of them looked like you? Um I noticed pretty early. Because I remember when I was a kid, so my mother was very serious about toys that I bought, especially dolls, that they look like me or as close to me as possible. Probably right. because she heard about the doll experiments where black cho- like black children are given a white doll and a black doll, and they're asked to choose which one you'd rather play with. And almost complete, almost every time, like I think it was 98% of the time, it was found that even the black children would choose the white doll and they would ask them, what do you see when you see this black doll? And they'd say, Oh, it's ugly. It's, it's poor. I don't want to play with that. The white doll is prettier. The white doll is more valuable. Right. And so my mother was like, from a very young age, you're going to get dolls that look like you, Mm. which in the nineties happened to be easy because a little while before they had just started doing like the Barbie doll in every shade. Right. Right, right, right. And, but with Disney princess dolls, that leaves you with Jasmine and Pocahontas, <laughs> mm-hmm. and neither of them look like me, but they're close enough, I guess. Yeah. And then Esmeralda comes out, and I remember, oh my God, Esmeralda was on everything when I was kid. I had the backpack, the socks the 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 doll that you got at Burger King like yeah. I had I had all of it and it was and and it was fascinating to try and find like what parts of me were in these women not necessarily just in terms of personality but in terms of like heritage I'm like oh okay so Esmeralda is what we call Romani they call Gypsy in the movie Mm-hmm. what I don't know what that means. It seems to be a catch-all for like a wide swath of, of type of person. So I, I guess I could be that. Am I that? Well, no, cause she has like, her hair is thick and it's curly, but it, it still seems like you can like comb it. So like maybe not. And then her eyes are green. So maybe not. Mm-hmm. And then like, <clears throat> excuse me. My mother said like, Oh, we might have native American in our family. So I was like, Oh, Pocahontas, maybe, 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 no, well, okay, she's she's 
too tall and her hair is so long and so straight. Like I had a, I had a complex for the longest time. I was like, I want long, straight hair because Pocahontas has long, straight hair and she doesn't have to do anything with it. It just exists. No one has to spend four hours doing her hair. It just is and it's pretty and everything. And like, she's so tall and she has such a cool face and all this stuff. And like, and Jasmine, I remember looking at Jasmine and being like, oh yeah, no, I don't, I don't look anything like her. I'm not really entirely like her. I've grown, like, although I've grown into seeing like the ways in which Jasmine has probably influenced my personality, but it's just a lot of trying to like find yourself in what you have and not yeah. seeing yeah. any of it. Like ultimately at the end of the day, realizing like, I'm not like any of these people. So I just got to make do with what I've got in terms of who they are as people. How old were you when you heard that Princess and the Frog was in the works? I was 16. Mm-hmm. Were you and... still an active, an active animation viewer at that point? Or Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I never stopped. It, was, it got to the point where, like, I, when I was, like, a preteen... That's when mm-hmm. stuff like Degrassi and things like that were coming out. And I remember not wanting to bother with it, not only because As Told by Ginger was on and it's basically <laughs> the same thing, except it's animated so greatly right. better, but also because I was like, I, I don't, I don't need, like, I was like, I don't want to deal with like real people (laughs) i was like i would i would much rather deal with this animated world that can say the same things and give the same lessons while also being really creative to look at um so i was deep into animation still when when i heard princess and the frog was coming out i was dedicated (laughs) so that was like gold star good news for you oh yeah i was i was beyond excited i especially I, I couldn't, well, I could tell which one I was ex- more excited about. But one of the things that I was really excited about was that they said, oh, it's going to be 2D, traditionally, traditional hand-drawn yes. animation. I freaked out. I was like, yes, 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 yes. Totally. Someone listen. All these years of praying since 2004, when Home on the Range came out, have finally paid off. I am getting what I need. And she's Black. This is Christmas. <laughs> yeah, totally. Hardcore. I mean, I I actually never saw Home on the Range. What? I, I don't even think I've heard of Home <laughs> Your face. Ooh. I don't think I'd heard of Home on the Range until I was researching for this podcast. And it was like, the first hand-drawn animation since Home on the Range. And the fact that I don't know what Home on the Range is probably explains why I stopped doing 2D animation for a while. Well, it's a comp. It's complicated. There's like there's some hostile takeover stuff in there, as well as, as well as like okay, the hand drawn animation department isn't really doing as well. And then Shrek came out, and everybody was like, "Oh my god, this must be the future!" And all mm-hmm, of the 2D mm-hmm. animators are like, "Um, maybe we should stick to what we know until we can get to a place where we can do Shrek, or it's like Shrek level stuff." And they're like. Well, let's just, I don't, it's, it's, it was really, really complicated, but it's, all of this is happening around the same time that Emperor's, from Emperor's New Groove all the way to Home on the Range is 
a lot of complicated Disney higher up politics that are happening, which is trickling down into affecting the animation department. And totally. then once Home on the Range came out, now you get a situation where they're like, oh, scrap the 2D animation thing. It's dead. Nobody wants to do it. So uh, all of which is to say, um, so you were 16 when you heard about Princess and the Frog that it was in the works. It was probably like almost a year away at that point. Indeed. And how much how much faith did you like i guess i guess what was your le- what was your expectation of princess and the frog <sighs> um well i heard it was happening then i heard what they were planning to do with it which at first tiana's name was supposed to be maddie which, yeah i read about all this yeah when you when you look it up it says like it sounds too close to mammy and that's why everybody had a problem with it which Probably is partially true, but also Maddie was a name that was frequently given to slave women. So everybody was like, uh, maybe not that one. Maybe choose yeah. something, I don't know, African. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like there's not a whole continent of na- of people with names you could choose from. Um, and then I heard that they wanted her to be a chambermaid, um, which was really like the thing that like, I was like, oh, no, don't do that. And I remember at the time when I was in high school, there were like white girls who would be like, oh, I don't understand what the big deal is. Like, you know, Cinderella's a chambermaid and Snow White's a chambermaid. And at the time, I didn't have the words to articulate how that's not the same. All I could say is that it's not the same thing. Like it's not. It's and it's not. And it's both and it's basically because there is not a his, there's not a history behind. Cinderella being a chambermaid. There's no history there. The history exists with choosing a black woman to be the lead of this movie and you're still going to have her in a subservient role. That's not that's not it to say the Especially movie. because like little girls will watch um you know Cinderella or Snow White and like I I don't know if if you remember this but when I was a kid and I would play Cinderella you play the whole story you play the part where you are the maid to your evil stepsisters mm-hmm. and you emulate that and even though it's part of a larger story where you wind up being a princess there's a part there's a part of the game that's really fun which is playing the victim and playing the martyr and playing the the scrappy the 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 playing playing the scrappy um underdog who's one day going to come out on top so if you're giving like if you're if you're giving little girls who are watching princess and the frog a model where the princess is a black princess who starts out as a chambermaid to a white family and that's the game she's going to play when she goes home it's it's it you're compounding something egregious and terrible yep i i think you hit the nail on the head with the cinderella snow white thing because I speak fluent white person and I absolutely assumed that like the white people in the room of this movie uh, uh, thought, no, this is great because we're going to be mirroring classic Disney princess fairy tales, but grounding it in America and in the true uh, African-American experience. And it's going to be okay because she's a princess at the end. So it's fine that it starts here. But it it denies the reality that the actual African-American experience is tragic and awful. It's not a thing that you should make a cheerful movie about. Yeah. And it's, and it's one of those things where it's, like it's 
we're going to get into it. I promise. But it's like, it's even in like, it's so much. How do I say it? It is so much. much. Um, As, so I remember when I was little, one of the things that happens when you're like playing pretend is Mm. when you don't look like the person that you're trying to pretend as you're at a disadvantage with all the other kids who want to play. So, so if you're like, I want to be Cinderella now, but you're in a room where you don't, you're the one that looks the least like Cinderella. Everybody else who looks like Cinderella gets first dibs closer to Cinderella. Now, when I was little, excuse me, a lot of like I I I went to school in places where I wasn't a I wasn't the minority when I was from pre-K to like eighth grade, right? But in playing pretend, there are people who look closer to Cinderella than I do. So it's a lot of like, well, I don't think you can be her. You don't look like her. Mm-hmm. Or well, there is somebody that when there's somebody that you look like, you have you have to be that person. So when everybody mm-hmm. plays Spice Girls. It's you and the other black girl who have to fight over being scary spice and everybody else gets to choose everybody else. Right. Mm -hmm. And And whoever's like, whoever's got the most social capital gets to be ginger. Nobody else gets like the the popular girl gets to be ginger. I have a lot of feelings. It's fine. Go on. So it's, so, you know, when, now when you're like, now we have a Disney princess who is black, you finally have somebody that you can pretend to be for the whole of the story, but you're still being a servant to everybody else who is pretending to be better than you, own you, make you do stuff. Especially when you're a kid, kids play pretend so immersively. Mm-hmm. So between learning about what slavery is like in school, learning about what slavery is like at home, and learning about what slavery is like from the media you watch, what winds up happening is you're just, it just keeps, like you said, it keeps compounding where it's like, okay, you're never, you never get to be the one who wins. You're always mm-hmm. going to have to serve people before you can win. And mm-hmm. this is this is this is supposed to be Tiana's movie. This is supposed to be about her. And why is she serving other people in her own damn movie? Like that's it's such a it was such a blind spot and it was such a it was it was disappointing to hear. But when they started to to work through it and they started to be like, "Oh, fine, she's going to be a waitress." Which is still serving people. But it was like she wants to get her own restaurant and she's so hardworking and she and she's going to have a job. And I was like, OK, this is this is interesting. Let's see where they go with it, because I was still thinking it was going to be a fairy tale at the end of it. You can start in a very practical place and then get yeah. to a fairy tale that is satisfying. And well, <laughs> yeah. How was it uh, when you finally bought your ticket and sat down and watched the movie? So I bought my ticket. It was my birthday. It was, it was my 18th birthday. I was so stoked. I was, this, this is what I did for my 18th birthday. I went to, I went to Ithaca mall because it was my freshman year of college. And I, I went with my best friend and we, we sat down and watched it and we were both so jazzed. And it was one of those things where it's like, nothing can go wrong. I'm going to love this regardless because this is all we fucking have. So 
I sit down and I watch it. And as I'm watching it, I'm liking it. Like, I like, no lie, when I first watched it, I liked everything about it. I, well, not everything, but I liked a lot of it. There were mm-hmm. things that bothered me. I didn't like, I didn't like Charlotte. I didn't like how Tiana didn't really seem to have much of a personality. I didn't like, I didn't really like the shenanigansness of it where it's like, okay, we're starting and we have a plot and then, but wait, we have, we have to do this, this gator chase and we have to do this, this firefly thing. And we have to do this, this random segue over here. And it's, it seemed distracting, like to go over all these places to then not come back to the plot. But I was like, you know what? It was fine. And I'll defend it to my grave. And now that I've had time to step back from it, I'm like, it was really, really disappointing. And I think I knew it when I watched it, but I didn't want to admit it because one, there's a stress that comes when you're underrepresented. If you critique the representation you have, oftentimes the next argument is, well, we don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll notice that there hasn't been a black princess since, but I've, I've grown in, in my journey and I've realized that it's like, if they're, if they're going to think that anyway, mm-hmm. if they're not going to, if they're not going to learn and they're not going to take away something meaningful from it to the point where they try it again, then you might as well critique the thing because it's fucked up and wrong. Yeah. Yeah. What an abusive fucking narrative that is. I mean, that like white dominated mainstream media will give you, will will give you something so lacking and you're afraid to complain about it because it's all you have. Like that just fucking sucks. Yeah. It, (laughs) you know, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to admit that when I saw this movie, so I, so I'm, I'm a couple of years older than you. So I was 20 when it came out and, uh, my, like my, my personal excitement was yes, another 2d animated princess movie. Cause computer animation is great, but like 2d animation is my childhood nostalgia, mm-hmm. a good old fashioned Disney musical. I'm here for it. Yep. And, uh, you know, I was kind of an idiot when I was 20, but I was, I was, I was still political. I was politically liberal in broad strokes. I was not as informed and woke as I am now. I will say that. So I was like, I knew enough to be excited and on board that there was going to be a black princess. Finally, this is awesome. When I watched it, the feelings that I had were, this makes me uncomfortable and I can't tell why. And part of what part of what made me uncomfortable is it's just like not dramaturgically. Like if you you take aside, if you take out the racial elements somehow, it's just not dramaturgically a great movie. It it just like the story doesn't hang together. It doesn't make sense. And the music isn't that great. I mean, there are some bops, but like none of them advance the story. So that's a problem that I could hang my hat on. The thing I couldn't hang my hat on was like. This feels racist and weird but i don't know enough to know how it is and the other thing that i assumed naively is maybe this is okay because surely 
Disney would not make a movie like this without some black creatives on board. <laughs> right? I like I assumed I assumed I was like surely no one would have the arrogance and the stupidity to say you know what we're going to tell a black story about a black princess in a historically black dominated part of the United States but we will involve absolutely no black people in the crafting of that story no one would do that so I assumed that like maybe I'm just Maybe I'm just not smart enough to get why this shouldn't make me uncomfortable. And then I just stopped thinking about it. And I legitimately have not watched or really thought about this movie in, until you suggested it earlier like this last weekend. And uh, when you told me it was an all-white creative team, watching the movie became a completely different, aggressively uncomfortable experience. Yeah, here's the thing. When I watched it, like in the beginning, now that I'm older, I was like, there, there couldn't have been any black people who worked on it. It couldn't have been. It couldn't have been. And I was like, okay, just so that I'm not talking out of my ass, let's look at who was on the story team. Right? So I wrote down everyone's name and I Googled them to see if I mm -hmm. could get a picture. There are seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. There are about 21 people on the story team for this movie. Of those 21, three are women at all. Only one is a woman of color. She is Asian. And of these 21 people, one is black. There is one black screenwriter. The screenwriters for the movie were um, Clements and Musker, the makers who were like, you know, the makers of The Great Mouse Detective, directors of Great Mouse Detective and Treasure Planet and Little Mermaid, mm -hmm. all that jazz. And Rob Edwards, who is the one black guy. Um, so out of these 21 people who are responsible for the story that we're telling, one of them is actually black. And another one is a woman of color but only three are women at all so yeah it's it makes the movie make more sense it does and it it recontextualizes like my feelings of 20 year old discomfort was like oh yeah no that was a that was a feeling i should have paid attention to as a matter of fact yep um I'm I'm really embarrassed that I didn't know. I mean, like uh, when you're 20, you're an idiot and and uh, you're very insecure. I'm embarrassed that I didn't know better because watching it now, it feels so blatant. I want to. Uh, Rob Edwards, you said, was the was the black man on the writing Indeed. staff. He was on the writing staff know? with Clements and Musker for Treasure Planet as well. Do you know when he joined the project and or when he left the project? Because Often, like, for instance, I'm thinking about uh, Toy Story 4, which I watched recently, which is going to be a whole nother podcast. And ooh, like, ooh, ooh, girl, I'd love to talk with you about that. Another time. <laughs> another we will. Time. I have a lot to say. But like yeah. Rashida Jones, Rashida Jones was a screenwriter for that. But she was at one point uh, removed and she still has a credit in the movie. Yeah. But she was she was removed from the movie and massive rewrites were undergone after her departure. Wow. So. Like, my question is, 
I mean, notwithstanding that already the balance is incorrect, that there is one black person out of 21 story writers. I, I'm interested in how much clout he had. Uh, I'm I'm looking it up now. I didn't see that he necessarily left the project. But one of the things that I'm highly aware of as well is in is power dynamics. So mm-hmm. when you have Clements and Musker, the guys who saved Disney from like abject ruin, and mm-hmm. like after they did that, then they did Aladdin and made the studio even more money. And then they were like, okay, now you have to do Hercules. And it's like, oh, okay. And then they did, which like, you know, was successful enough, but it wasn't on the same level as Aladdin and whatnot. But like, basically these are the guys with the clout in, in, within the Disney company making animated movies. So while he may not, even if he didn't necessarily leave, I don't see anything that says that he left the project and I don't see anything that indicates when he came in. Okay. Then, then let's not speculate. Let's leave that where it is. Um, but something, something else that I found interesting in my research for this this movie. So, uh, a side note: I did some research for this movie, but uh, not as much about the production itself as I would have liked to, because I got down this deep rabbit hole about voodoo and voodoo representation yeah. in mainstream media, which we're going to get to in a second, because I got some notes. Yeah, um, but. The element in the history of this project's development that made me quirk an eyebrow is that after that initial 2007 uh, shareholders meeting where they like played some songs and showed some early art and Tiana's name was Maddie and she was a chambermaid and it was called the Frog Princess mm-hmm. uh, and all of those criticisms came in. Um, some of the criticisms of which were, why are you setting this in New Orleans in the 1920s when Jim Crow was a thing? Oh, why oh, are you? I, I have. I, yep. We'll get. To okay. That. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm, we're going to we're going to get on that in a second. Yeah. But like my, my thought is like Disney's response to this was we hear you. We'll make some changes and we're going to hire Oprah Winfrey as a technical mm-hmm. consultant. Mm-hmm. Now. Oprah Winfrey's status and stature as an African-American icon and a champion of African-American stories and literature and a producer of very important African-American movies aside, she is also the person that they, the person that they picked was the most palatable and non-threatening to white audiences that they could pick. And it was only one person. They introduced exactly one person non-threatening black woman to their staff and gave her a role in the movie. And that feels very calculated to me. Mm -hmm. It also feels, it feels calculated and it also feels like, I also wonder how much they were going to listen to her anyway. Because yes, she's Oprah, but for like the title is vague. It sounds like one of those titles that someone gives you that can mean anything that they want it to mean. And also, I don't know how much power she has. Like, it's, does she have the right of refusal? Can she tell people like, hey, you're you're messing up. You can't do this. Hey, you need to change everything about this story. Because like, again, given what we got in the end, 
I feel like I don't know how either Oprah wasn't doing a lot because she was busy or she didn't feel like it or the company itself was like didn't really have to listen to her because again it's still set in Louisiana in 1926. I mean, I feel like the implied threat of having Oprah involved was that like, well, if she doesn't like it, she might badmouth the movie on her channels. And so, you know, we're setting ourselves up for accountability to the most <laughs> vocal and vocal and visible uh, voice for African-American people right now. But like, really, was she was she going to do that? Was that really a threat? No. Also, like Oprah is on channel. Oprah, when Oprah had her show, she was on Channel Seven. Channel Seven is ABC. Oh God, ABC oh, is right. owned by the Disney Company. So she could have, if she wanted to, and it's not like there was any risk for her. But she's still mm-hmm. on an Dis- a Disney affiliated channel with her show and her avenues. So it's not like she had much recourse to sit here and badmouth what they were doing. And she also grew up with, she grew up used to even less representation. So again, there's a level of holding it hostage where it's like, if anybody makes too much of a fuss about this, this movie's not going to get made. And since she's Oprah, there's a level of, if I say anything bad about this movie, this movie's not going to get made. So she probably, like, anything that she saw, she could have, very, like, speculation, speculation, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. She could have very well just kept her mouth shut because she knows her influence and she knows how important this movie is. Right. And she doesn't want to do anything to jeopardize it getting made. Totally. This podcast is sponsored in part by Audible. Confession, I have had a full-on case of reader's block pretty much continuously since March of 2020. On top of that, after a full day of working from home, complete with Zoom calls, sound editing, spreadsheets, graphic editing, and hours of staring at my computer, the idea of relaxing by staring at another screen doesn't sound relaxing. Lucky for me, I can find the perfect entertainment and escape through Audible, with thousands of titles spanning audiobooks, theatrical recordings, guided meditations, and more. Audible has something for pretty much any mood and any moment I might find myself in. Listeners of this podcast can get a free 30-day trial, meaning one free credit to spend however you'd like, by going to audibletrial.com/cringebenefits today. For a fanciful escape from the world outside your window, I recommend you check out Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. It's a Eastern European take on traditional Germanic fairy tales, but with some badass heroines who aren't afraid to get fucking angry. Seriously, it is wonderful. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash cringe benefits to start your free trial today. Well, so, okay, so we've talked about We've talked about like the expectations going in. We've talked about the production side. Before we before we unpack the cringe, Regina, it would be my privilege and pleasure if you would please tell me the plot of The Princess and the Frog. Excuse me one moment. Yep, both of us need a drink. Well, drink my beer. All right, let's do it. Okay, so tell me a story. Once upon a time, there was a little girl named Tiana, and Tiana's mom worked for this white family, making dresses <laughs> for her spoiled white friend named Charlotte. Is Charlotte her friend? 
because they actually had a chance to get to know each other and develop a bond outside of, I don't know, servitude of her mother to her, to her best friend's father. No. Um, (laughs) But Tiana has to be there while her mom is there because someone has to watch the kids. So Tiana and Charlotte are friends in big quotation marks. Mm -hmm. And Tiana and her family live on the poor side of town. So, and and like, you know, the black side of town that they have to like commute to on, I believe it's the trolley. They sit in the back seat of the streetcar, by the way. They sit in the back back seat of the streetcar. (laughs) They do that. That's a thing that happens. That's a thing that happens. Yeah. So (laughs) I didn't even realize that that happened. (laughs) Oh, I wrote it down. I wrote it down and I circled it. My stress is so high. (laughs) So, so her dad has this dream of opening a restaurant and he encourages Tiana to cook as well. She's a little old girl. And like, you know, she's like helping him make gumbo and they share it with everybody who lives in their neighborhood. And his whole thing is that food brings people together from all walks of life. And that's what I want to do with my restaurant. I want people to come to eat our, my food. And then Tiana's like, our food, daddy. And it's like, you're right, our food. And so, <laughs> so the evening star is out and Tiana's like, oh, Charlotte's fairy tale books say that like when you make a wish on the star, it'll sh- it's sure to come true. And her dad tells her, yes, that's true. And you wish on your stars and you dream, but you have to chip in with hard work to make your dreams come true. And promise me that you'll never, ever lose sight of what's really important. So Tiana grows up. Her father passes away. It seems like he passed away in World War I. But she's still fighting to get this restaurant. So she has all these coffee cans where she saved all of her tips in order to get, in order to be able to save up to get this restaurant. And she's doing clearly back-to-back shifts at different restaurants across the city in order to be able to to save up for this sugar mill that is abandoned and you can buy it. And so she works at this restaurant as an adult and her, her white friend in quotation marks, Charlotte breezes in and talks about how this prince is coming to down to town from this made up country called Maldonia. And she's, and he's staying at her house and she and Charlotte is the one who's so obsessed with like wishing on stars and having, you know, fairy tale dreams and this whole thing. And she's like determined to get this man. And it's worth pointing out that the reason he's staying at their house is because like her father is the richest man in town. Like yes. Charlotte, Charlotte is not just a rich, a rich white girl. She is the rich white girl, the richest of rich white girls. And her, and like also like. Naveen comes over to America because he's broke. His parents have cut him off. He, he was going around spending money, being a cad in Maldonia. And they send him away and they're like, you either got to get a job and you got to figure it out. So, his, so the plan that he develops is either marry a rich girl or get a job. You don't want to get a job. So it's marry a rich girl. Charlotte's the ticket. So, and Charlotte's perfectly fine with that. And she says so. So Tiana says like, well, quickest way to a man's heart is to his stomach. Remember that as a joke, Charlotte then decides, oh, I'm going to throw my dad's money at you now. 
so that you can cook for me at this party I'm having, best friend. Ugh. But Tiana's like, oh crap, now I can get my restaurant. There are there's paper money in front of me. It's makes it's made very clear that Tiana's had like she collects coins yeah. for for her restaurant. Now she has paper money. And she's like, I'm going to buy the sugar bill. I'm going to turn it into a restaurant. It's happening. I'm almost there. It's so close. Smash cut to, well, not smash cut. It's more of a crossfade. But anyway, <laughs> meanwhile, Naveen is like in New Orleans because he loves jazz and he's still trying to cut up and he's still trying to go out and he's flirting with the young women. And then he runs into Dr. Facilier, who... Oh, is the only one who calls himself Dr. Facilier. Side note, everybody else calls him the Shadow Man. Ugh. And he's shown in the beginning of the movie doing quote-unquote voodoo, where people will ask him for something, and he'll take their money and give them what they want, but it may not work out the way that they needed it to work out. He basically he, he basically grants monkey's paw wishes where he'll give you what you wanted with a whole bunch of unintended consequences. Um, a theme to which I will return throughout this episode is what the fuck is his deal? What does he want? Why is he? Why? Go on. Oh, my God. Yes. Um, <laughs> oh, a spectacular. He's voiced by Keith David. National treasure Keith David, a.k.a. Most people will know him as Goliath in Gargoyles. Keith oh my David. god! Oh yes. my god! Okay, all right, go on. He, go on. He, he's the he's waste of Keith David, and so they go to like it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be like oh he's reading palms and he's granting spells and everything because it's New Orleans and people do that. And so they go into his parlor. Who's they? Uh, Naveen, and who's the prince who visited from the made up right, 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 and Lawrence, his manservant. And Lawrence is uh, like clearly shown to be very put upon. Just he's like Cogsworth. He's like old, old white British. He, he's the old white British manservant who can't believe that he's out here babysitting this <laughs> nonsense prince. Yeah, this grossly irresponsible. I would be such a better ruler if someone let me do it. Kind put of a pin it. in that. Put a pin in that. And so he, so basically, shadow. So. Facilier says, oh, okay, so Naveen, you want, the, you need money. You like, so I see green in your future. And then he tells Lawrence, you're put upon so much, but in your future, I see that you'll be the man you've always wanted to be. And on the tarot card that he gives him, it's showing him being the prince and Naveen being the one who has to work for him. So the deal is made. They shake hands. Mm -hmm. Dr. Facilier turns Naveen into a frog takes his blood and puts it in an amulet this amulet gives Lawrence the ability to look like Naveen mm -hmm. and thus he'd be the one who would marry Charlotte in the switcheroo but like you know the plan eventually kind of falls apart because they didn't think about what Dr. Facilier wanted um, mm -hmm. all these 21 people and not one of you could think about what Dr. Facilier wanted. Um, I still don't know. I still, I, don't know. I still don't know. I know what he, I know what it is on paper. I don't know what it gets him, but we'll get to that. Okay, so, great. Yes. So Naveen, quote unquote, who is really Lawrence with this amulet on, shows up to the party that Tiana is serving 
people beignets at while her supposed best friend is like, you know, the bell of the ball running around. Oh, I want my prince. Why isn't he here yet? Also, the realtors for the sugar mill Tiana's about to buy show up. And they've like taken the for sale sign off of it. It is basically hers. And she's like, okay, I'm going to sign the papers that y'all brought to me and I'm going to get this sugar mill. And then they tell her she was outbid. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you have to top the offer that was given to us in two days or else you're not going to get the place. Mm -hmm. And she's like, wait a minute. No, I put in the offer first and I, I, I've worked so hard and I had, and like, you know, I was first in line to it. And they say, like direct quote, they say, oh, like a little woman of your background would have had her hands full running a place like that. You're better off where you're at. Mm -hmm. And so she tries to stop them from walking away. She falls into the, like the catering, basically like the little catering table she was working at. And she, like her dress is ruined and she's clearly upset. Charlotte takes her upstairs to help her change. Right. But I just want to put a pin in this real quickly because this is like a this is a this is this is a vote in the Charlotte column because like selfish self-involved Charlotte who's been waiting all night for this prince to arrive immediately abandons the prince to go take care of Tiana which like as fucked up and dysfunctional as their friendship is oh you're making a face go on interrupt me she she takes her upstairs yeah but the whole time she talks about herself while yeah. Tiana is clearly upset yeah, I guess. And then yeah. as she keeps going, talking about like, oh, it seems like only yesterday we were just dreaming our fairy tale dreams and now they're finally coming true. Then she does a really funny thing where she like adjusts her bra and leaves, which I think was hilarious. But like, and she leaves her there. Like her like her supposed friend is, is clearly upset. Like it isn't just that she fell and now everything's covering her and she's a mess. She right. is upset. She's not talking. She looks sad. And you're sitting here talking about, oh, our fairy tale dreams and everything. Tiana's dreams were never fairy tale, which is part of my problem with this movie. But Tiana's dream was to get the damn restaurant. Which she's worked hard for every day of her life. I also I also wrote down at this moment because Charlotte takes her upstairs and says, I have the perfect dress for you to wear. It's a dress that Tiana's mother probably made for her. Like, yes. So she's dressing her in the fruits of her own mother's paid labor. Yes. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. And so she takes her upstairs, but she never asks her what's wrong. She never gets mm -hmm. the answer out of her. She looks at her being upset and she talks about their dreams, but they're really just Charlotte's dreams. And then she mm -hmm. leaves her upset upstairs, doesn't even try to take her with her. Like mm -hmm. she doesn't, Charlotte doesn't even try to take Tiana with her when she's like, I'm going to go back out and, and get my man. She leaves Tiana upstairs and Tiana's so upset. And so she decides to wish on the star one more time. Cause she's like, what else do I have to lose? Then a frog appears, which is a mirror to what happened the first time she did it. And they eventually come to the conclusion Oh, he's like Naveen says you have to kiss me. That'll that'll break the spell. Tiana kisses him and she turns into a frog as well. Mm -hmm. And they determine after some shenanigans of them being like tossed around, they determine that it didn't work because she's not a princess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
America's not a monarchy, so I don't know why. And it's a costume party that he got invited to. So I don't know as they I don't know what he thought. <laughs> I really don't why know is he thought. surprised? But also in the middle of this argument that they're having in the middle of the swamp about how she lied, she's a prin- she's not a princess, she's just a waitress. It also comes out that he was just planning to marry Charlotte for her money. And money. so now Tiana's stuck with this total asshole. Total asshole. And but like they try to make it like they have this weird opportunistic thing that happens where Naveen says, oh, if you kiss me and turn me into a prince, I'm, I have a lot of money. So right. I'd be able, I'd be able to like, I'm surely there's something that you want. And I'd be able, like, if you kiss me. I oh, that's right. The whole reason she kisses him is because he promises to buy her restaurant if she does. And so if, then she, she finds out that she wouldn't have gotten the restaurant because he doesn't have the money. And then the deal becomes, listen, we both become human. I will marry your friend Charlotte. And then once I have Charlotte's money, I'll use that for your restaurant. Yeah. And then again, the plot gets into like loose flailing shenanigans where they run into a jazz trumpet playing crocodile named Lewis mm-hmm. who, who tells them that there is a voodoo witch doctor lady who lives in the swamp that he can take them to who would be able to reverse the spell that facilitated and he leads them in the wrong direction after a non furthering anything highly uncomfortable for me musical number called when we're human and mm. they go in the wrong direction and meet the best character in the movie uh the firefly named ray he's cajun he's voiced by jim cummings voice acting icon mm-hmm. and Ray takes them in the correct direction. They meet Mama Odie. Mama Odie tells them the bait, like gives them screenwriting 101, where she says, what you want is not necessarily what you need. And you need to figure out what you need and ignore what you want, because that's not, that's, you have to dig deeper into yourself to find what you need instead of what you want. But also isn't like dig a little deeper the, you're sure to do impossible things if you follow your heart song of this movie because like that's not what they actually end up doing it like has no bearing on the resolution of the plot and also like i don't know what dig a little deeper actually means in this context if somebody told me hmm interesting about your interpersonal problems abby maybe if you dug a little deeper they would resolve like dig deeper into me dig deeper into the other person dig deeper into like the socio-political climate in which we are I feel like they get it with Naveen because Naveen, because nobody develops character in this movie, unless they say it out loud, Naveen (laughs) thinks he needs money. He wants money. He wants like to keep having his Casanova lifestyle that he had back home just in America. He thinks he needs money. But what Mama Odie literally says is like she says, money, money ain't got no soul. Money ain't got no heart. All you need is some self-control and you'll make yourself a brand new start. So it's 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 a combination of dig a little deeper into the circumstances around you. What else could you want out here? And also is dig a little deeper inside yourself. Realize what you want deeper inside yourself. And she says, maybe love will grant you peace of mind. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Meaning, and like, 
his arc is the clear is one of the clearest ones in the movie if his not arc the is one in the movie the clearest in the i i think probably the least objectionable because here's yeah. the thing here's the thing about the tiana arc that really bothered me on this viewing is that like from the very beginning from both like what her dad says to her and then what her mother says to her when they visit the sugar mill and and she sings almost there which is almost a great song uh-huh. with, like like the the and and here in dig a little deeper and a few other times like she is very clear and forthright about what she wants and what her mm-hmm. goals are what her i wish is and her i wish is i have worked hard all of my life for this thing i want to have this thing and i want all of my hard work to be recognized and justified mm-hmm. um this is a reasonable thing to want everybody's response to it is this very euphemistic you need to focus on what's important, which is, is it having fun? Is it having a family? Is it falling getting in love? Married. Yeah. Getting like, married and having kids? Like, it's a very thinly veiled anti-career woman message. I don't think this actually, now that I'm thinking out loud, is presented as dichotomous, as like, it's better to have a family than to be ambitious and you can only have one because spoiler alert at the end she gets both yeah but it is presented as like you may know what you want and you may be extremely self-actualized and working towards it but you actually don't know that your life is fully incomplete because you don't want this thing that society has agreed you should need this is the thing that bothers me this recent time that i watched it yeah is the fact that like because they keep bringing up what Tiana needs, they failed because they never established that she wasn't happy with what she had. Yes, she's like, very happy. She's very, like, even if she's tired, she's fine with doing what she's doing. Like, I, and it would have been so easy. Because, like, me personally, I don't get this whole, I don't, like, there are people who are like this, who are like, I know what I want and I'm going to get what I want. And God damn it. I'm not going to, if I have to not have fun for however many years until I get it, then that's just what I'm going to do. But Tiana wasn't like, so Tiana seems to be that person where she's choosing this. It's mm-hmm. not like she, it's not like she's agonizing over, Oh, do I, do I go out? Do I, I want to go out. I want to spend time with my friends, but not, no, right. I need the like it would be so easy to have her agonize over it. It would be so easy to have her, excuse me, ignore family functions. It she so never easy. regrets not being able to go out. Like people invite her out and she's like, no. And that's the end of that. Like yeah. people keep, people have to convince her that she's missing out. Yeah. No one ever really does. Like, it's very clear that no one really convinces Tiana that she's missing it much of anything. Because she says, I don't have time. That's going to have to wait. I don't, I don't have time. I got other things. I can, and, she, and it's never that she does, she's not going to get to it. She's yeah. like, I'll get to it later. But right now, this is what I want. Yeah. And it would, and there's nothing wrong with being that person. And it's very, it's kind of insulting to have her keep having to have this conversation where people keep telling her like i want you to have your fairy tale i want you to have your happily ever after like oh you should like you know you seem to be as like you know you can lighten up like are you going to come out dancing with us it's kind of insulting to have that presented as oh you need you need to think about what you need and it's like it's clear that she still spends time with her family yeah and 
Also, her restaurant is an act of love because it's a dream that she shared with her father and it's a way of honoring his memory and keeping mm -hmm. him alive. But there's this really uh, kind of upsetting moment there's this, this, this interesting moment for me. I think it's Mama Odie who does this, but I might be misremembering where uh, she is shown an image of her father coming home from his multiple shifts, bone oh, tired. That's, that's Dr. Facilier who does it. It's Dr. Facilier. Yes, yes. Uh, he comes home and he's bone tired and he like he he he's been working too many jobs. And, you know, Tiana's whole justification is I want to finish what my father started. He never got what he wanted. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Facilier is like, oh, yeah, but, you know, he he uh he had what he needed, which was you and your love. And it's okay that he never got there because he was happy where he was at. Yeah, that's, now, what, Tiana, that's what Tiana says to justify it. That's right. And that's insidious in this context because it, it's, 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 it's saying to this Black heroine that uh, upward social mobility is an evil. That a desire to rise above your current social and economic status is sacrificing your relationships and your love. And it's much more important to stay where you are economically yep. and socially yeah. with your family than it is for you to do what you need to do to go forward and above in life. And that yeah. was real upsetting. It was it's like, yes, yes, it is. The thing that really bugs me about the whole premise is that there is a long history in this in America of black women working. Like there is a long history like everybody when they when people talk about like the feminist movement and how it was about women wanting to work, it's like no only white women weren't allowed to work. There was an, or as a matter of fact, in America, there were places in America where ordinances were put in place that black women had to work or face a fine. Mm -hmm. And this is, and like, and, and that's, and that's not even counting like, you know, slavery and taking care of literally everybody and everything. So the idea that in this fairy tale, it's supposed to be a princess movie. It's supposed to be there's magic and shenanigans and, 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 and dreams coming true. In all of this, she's still working. Yes. yes. <laughs> In all of this, she's still limited to like her, her version of success is limited to what was attainable by Black women in 1926. So exactly. The the um, John Lasseter and uh, I, I uh, the the story the the directors rather um, wanted to once they made the decision to make her a uh, waitress uh, they modeled her loosely after Leah Chase who was the restaurateur of Dookie Chase in New Orleans. There's yep. also uh, resonances with Edna Lewis who is uh, sort of the grandmother of southern cuisine being taken seriously as a cooking style in America she wrote mm -hmm. a very good cookbook uh, it is uh, the kitchen.com's cookbook of the month in October um, hey. <laughs> it's like again this is a you can point you can point to this arc and say, well, yeah, but it's grounded in the rich and storied reality of the African American experience. But again, the reality of the African American experience is sad and inherently limited, at least in this context. Like there yeah. are many, there is many a beautiful thing, but in this context, if you want it to be 
where she is like it's it can't be done like it to set it in america as a fairy tale with a black woman can't be done unless Mm -hmm. this black woman falls down a rabbit hole where none of her history matters and and none of her in her history can inform who she is but it doesn't have a direct effect on her life Mm -hmm. and part it's like the thing that frustrates me is that why does this have to be grounded in reality? You mm-hmm. could, you made up a whole fake country for her love interest to be from. Why mm-hmm. couldn't you just make up a whole fake country for Tiana to be from? Mm-hmm. You could, you like this whole thing could have been set in Maldonia and this wouldn't have like it. It why like why does it have like I understand you like jazz and that's cute but. Also, you like jazz, you wanted a jazz soundtrack, so you hired Randy Newman to compose it. Now, let me be clear. Uh, I speak fluent white person, and I really like Randy Newman. And Randy (laughs) Newman uh, did, in fact, uh, in my limited research, grow up in or near uh, New Orleans, and he does play in a jazz style. But if you are going to write a movie that is supposed to be about the Black experience... It is true that the experience of uh, an inherently black musical form being appropriated by white musicians is a true one, but it's also not one you should celebrate by having Randy Newman compose your soundtrack. Yep. And especially when most of the score sounds a lot like Toy Story. (laughs) It's, it's, you know, he's got a style. He's got a recognizable style. Part of why he was brought on is John Lasseter was the executive producer of this one. John Lasseter, Mm -hmm. who was like the... The, the godfather of, of uh, Pixar until Me Too happened to him. Yeah, um, man. Oh, it's come just, on. Get, it, come on, my dude. It's, just, it's disappointing. It's disappointing is. all around. But, like, it's just, 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 that's, like, that's my grand frustration with this movie is why, why does this princess have to be practical? Like they're they, like I understand like I'm sure that none of these people who made this movie and came up with the concept for this movie I'm sure none of them intentionally meant to do this, but you like everybody is raised in America being taught certain things about black people, and one of the things that people are taught consciously and subconsciously, explicitly and subliminally, is that. Black women exist to work. We are so hardworking and so strong. And to be explicit, I am a Black woman for podcasters who can't see my face. And it's like there's the stereotype of a, a Black woman being so strong and so independent and we don't need no man and eye, neck rolling and finger snapping and the rest of it. Because that is so present and it's present because it's deliberately made because of slavery and then after slavery because the system couldn't get over the fact that black people might also have actualization outside of what white people do to and for them what winds up happening is that media pushes this narrative of black women being subservient to white women being maids and and cooks and evolving into the sassy black friend who is there to help 
the white or light skinned woman, you know, feel better about whatever dilemma she has. And she never has her own personality. She never has her own needs. She never has her own preferences. She just exists to serve other people. And it's so present, even in this movie where Tiana is supposed to be the lead. This is supposed to be her movie. This is supposed to be about her. And yet, the only thing we learn about her is that she works hard and I guess is family-oriented, but she's constantly serving other people. She's mm-hmm. serving her, like, she's serving her dad's wants. She's serving her her white friend. She's serving Naveen to an extent where it's like, oh, I'm going to get us out of here. And she's the one who's building a raft. And she's the one who's trying to find information. And she's the one who's going out and trying to get them to the next step. It's so, it's so frustrating to watch because it's like, why couldn't, she just have an existential want. Why couldn't it be, why couldn't she also want adventure in the great wide somewhere? Especially if you want to start it in America, there would be all the reason for Tiana to be like, I want to go anywhere else. There's Mm -hmm. gotta be somewhere better than this. Mm -hmm. You know, why couldn't it be an existential want of, I want a night off. I want, I, even if it was, I want a prince. Like that's not like, why isn't she allowed to want a prince? That's a very good question. Why isn't she allowed? Why does why does the movie keep saying why does like everybody keep forcing this thing on her and she's the one who says I don't need that? Like why isn't she allowed? Why isn't she allowed to want a prince? Why isn't she allowed to want feet? Why isn't she allowed to want to explore that world up above? Why isn't she allowed to have confusion about what she wants and like where do I belong? Why isn't she allowed to to be frustrated with the restrictions of her overbearing parents? Like, what, of all the things you could come up with, and of all the myriad of human experience that you and wants and needs that you could give somebody, the only thing that they can boil it down to for her is a restaurant. It just it makes me so so angry that like little girls little black girls growing up, it's like, yes, it's nice. It's, it is a change from the other Disney narratives that exist. But it's in such a terrible direction to me because the media at large gives black girls a narrative of you must always be working, you must always be strong, you must always be independent. And to want anything else means that you are somehow less black or less female somehow. You can't, whatever your dreams are that are existential and not career related and not related to something concrete that one can hold and touch and really exists is invalid. You're not allowed to wish on stars. And this movie is another one of those in a long line of narrative that just says you're not allowed to wish on stars. We have to leave it here for time, but... Don't worry, there is plenty more to say about Princess and the Frog, and you are going to hear it on next week's episode of Cringe Benefits, where we say a whole lot more about this childhood not-so-favorite and our grown-up regrets about it. Bye!